With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 2 of Christopher Quarles, College Professor and Master Detective by Percy James Brebner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE IDENTITY OF THE FINAL VICTIM I soon fell into the habit of going to see Professor Quarles. As an excuse, I talked over cases with him, but he seldom volunteered an opinion, often was obviously uninterested. Truth to tell, I was not there for his opinion, but to see his granddaughter. A detective in love sounds something like an absurdity, but such was my case, and... Since Zena's manner did not suggest that she was particularly interested in me, my love affair seemed a rather hopeless one. My association with Christopher Quarles has, however, led to the solution of some strange mysteries, and, since my own achievements are sufficiently well known, I may confine myself to those cases which single-handed I should have failed to solve. I know that in many of them I was credited with having unraveled the mystery, but this was only because Professor Quarles persisted in remaining in the background. If I did the spade work, the deductions were his. They were all cases with peculiar features in them, and it was never as a detective that Quarles approached them. He was often as astonished at my acumen in following a clue as I was at his marvelous theories, which seemed so absurd to begin with, yet proved correct in the end. Perhaps his curious power was never more noticeable than in the case of the Withan murder. A farmer returning from Medworth, the neighboring market town, one night in January, was within a quarter mile of Withan village when his horse suddenly shied and turned into the ditch. During the afternoon there had been a fall of snow, sufficient to cover the ground to a depth of an inch or so, and in places it had drifted to a depth of two feet or more. By evening the clouds had gone, the moon sailed in a clear sky, and looking round to find the cause of his horse's unusual behavior, the farmer saw a man lying on a heap of snow under the opposite hedge. He was dead. More, he was headless. It was not until some days later that the case came into my hands, and in the interval the local authorities had not been idle. It was noted that the man was poorly dressed, that his hands proved he was used to manual labor, but there was no mark either on his body or on his clothing, nor any papers in his pockets to lead to his identification. So far as could be ascertained, nobody was missing in Witham or Medworth. It seemed probable that the murderer had come upon his victim secretly, that the foul deed had been committed with horrible expedition. Otherwise the victim, although not a strong man, would have made some struggle for his life, and apparently no struggle had taken place. Footprints, nearly obliterated, were traceable to a wood on the opposite side of the road, but no one seemed to have left the wood in any direction. 
From this fact it was argued that the murder had been committed early in the afternoon, soon after the storm began, and that the snow had hidden the murderer's tracks from the wood. That snow had drifted out of the dead body seemed to establish this theory. Why had the murderer taken the head with him? There were many fantastic answers to the question. Some of the country folk, easily superstitious, suggested it must be the work of the devil. Others put it down on an escaped lunatic, while others again thought it might be the work of some doctor who wanted to study the brain. The authorities believed it had been removed to prevent identification and would be found buried in the wood. It was not found, however, and the countryside was in a state bordering on panic. For a few days the Witham murder seemed unique in atrocities, and then came a communication from the French police. Some two years ago an almost identical murder had been committed outside a village in Normandy. In this case also the head was missing, and nothing had been found upon the body to identify the victim. He was well-dressed, and a man who would be likely to carry papers with him, but nothing was found, and the murder had remained a mystery. These were the points known and conjectured when the case came into my hands, and my investigations added little to them. One point, however, impressed me. I felt convinced that the man's clothes, which were shown to me, had not been made in England. They were poor, worn almost threadbare, but they had once been fairly good, and the cut was not English. That it was French I could not possibly affirm, but it might be, and so I fashioned a fragile link with the Normandy crime. On this occasion I went to Quarles with the object of interesting him in the Withan case, and he forestalled me by beginning to talk about it the moment I entered the room. Here I may mention a fact which I had not discovered at first. Whenever he was interested in the case, I was always taken into his empty room. At other times, we were in the dining room or the drawing room. It was the empty room on this occasion, and Zena remained with us. I went carefully through the case point by point, and he made no comment until I had finished. The foreign cut of the clothes may be of importance, he said. I am not sure. Is this wood you mentioned of any great extent? No, it runs beside the road for two or three hundred yards. Toward Witham? No, it was near the Witham end of it that the dead man was found. Any traces that the head was carried to the wood? The local authorities say yes, and not a trace afterward. The ground in the wood was searched at the time, and I have been over it carefully since. Through one part of the wood there runs a ditch, which is continued as a division between two fields, which form part of the farmland behind the wood. By walking along this, the murderer might have left the wood without leaving tracks behind him. A good point, Wigan. And where would that ditch lead him? Eventually to the high road, where it runs almost at right angles to the Withan Road. "'Much water in the ditch?' asked Quarles. "'Half a foot when I went there. "'It may have been less at the time of the murder. "'The early part of January was dry, you will remember. "'There was a moon that night, wasn't there?' "'Full or near it,' I returned. "'And how soon was the alarm raised along the countryside?' "'That night. "'It was about eight o'clock when the body was found. "'And after going to the village, "'the farmer returned to Medworth for the police. "'A man who had walked a considerable distance in a ditch "'would be wet and muddy,' said Zena. And if he were met on the road carrying a bag, he would arrest attention. Why carrying a bag? asked Quarles. With the head in it, she answered. That's another good point, Wigan, chuckled Quarles. Of course, the head may be buried in the wood, said Zena. Quarles looked at me inquiringly. I searched the wood with that idea in my mind, I said. One or two doubtful places I had dug up. I think the murderer must have taken the head with him. To bury somewhere else? asked Quarles. Perhaps not, I answered. A mad doctor, bent on brain experiments? Is that your theory, Wigan? 
not necessarily a doctor, but some homicidal maniac who is also responsible for the Normandy murder. The likeness between the two crimes can hardly be a coincidence. What was the date of the French murder? January the 17th. Nearly the same date as the English one, said Zena. Two years intervening, I returned. Wigan, it would be interesting to know if a similar murder occurred anywhere in the intervening year at that date, said Quarles. Do you have a theory, Professor? An outlandish one, which would make you laugh. No, no, I do not like being laughed at. I never mention my theories until I have some facts to support them. I am interested in this case. Perhaps I shall go to Withan. There was nothing more to be got out of the professor just then, and I departed. I took the trouble to make inquiry whether any similar crime had happened in England in the January of the preceding year, and had the same inquiry made in France. There was no record of any murder bearing the slightest resemblance to the Withan tragedy. A few days later, Quarles telegraphed me to meet him at King's Cross, and we traveled north together. Wait, he said when I began to question him. I am not sure yet. My theory seems absurd. We are going to find out if it is. We took rooms at a hotel in Medworth, Quarles explaining that our investigation might take some days. Next morning, instead of going to Withan as I had expected, he took me to the police court and seemed to find much amusement in listening to some commonplace cases, and was not very complimentary in his remarks about the bench of magistrates. The next afternoon he arranged a drive. I thought we were going to Witham, but we turned away from the village, and presently Quarles stopped the carriage. "'How far are we from Witham?' he asked the driver. Five or six miles. The road winds a lot. It's a deal nearer as the crow flies.' "'You need not wait for us, Trevor. My friend and I are going to walk back.' The coachman pocketed his money and drove away. "'Couldn't keep him waiting all night, as we may have to do,' said Quarles. "'Mind you, Wigan, I'm very doubtful about my theory. At least I am not certain that I shall find the facts I want. A few hours will settle it one way or the other.' After walking along the road for about a mile, Quarles scrambled through a hedge into a wood by the roadside. We're trespassers, but we must take our chance. Should we meet anyone, blame me. Say I am a doddering old fool who would walk under the trees, and you were obliged to come see that I didn't get into any mischief. Do you go armed? Always, I answered. I do sometimes, he said, tapping his pocket. We might come up against danger if my theory is correct. If I tell you to shoot, shoot, and quickly. Your life is likely to depend upon it, and keep your ears open to make sure no one is following us. He had become keen like a dog on the trail, and, old as he was, seemed incapable of fatigue. Whether he had studied the topography of the neighborhood I cannot say, but he did not hesitate in his direction until he reached a high knoll, which was clear of the wood and commanded a considerable view. We were trespassers in a private park. To our right was a large house, only partially seen through its screen of trees, but it was evidently mellow with age. To our left, toward what was evidently the extremity of the park, was hilly ground, which had been allowed to run wild. To this, Quarles pointed. "'That is our way,' he said. "'We'll use what cover we can.' We plunged into the wood again, and were soon in the wilderness, forcing our way, sometimes with considerable difficulty, through the undergrowth. Once or twice the professor gave me a warning gesture, but he did not speak. He had evidently some definite goal, and I was conscious of excitement as I followed him. For an hour or more he turned this way and that, 
exploring every little ravine he could discover, grunting his disappointment each time he failed to find what he was looking for. I said I wasn't certain, he whispered, when 